Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years' experience of working with young people, and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. In this episode, you'll hear from broadcaster, journalist and author Janelle Aldred. You might say something that is a problem and that is problematic and then people call you out on that. You feel cancelled because you feel rejected. Are you cancelled? That's a question that I think is up for debate. But I think the other thing that we need to do in some of these conversations is take away feelings from facts. Having presented on screen for the BBC, ITV, ITN and Five News, Janelle published her book, Communicate for Change, in September 2021. In it, she explores how to recognise bias and understand its impact on every area of life. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up. And this is Janelle Aldred. Janelle, welcome. It's lovely to have you here. It's really nice to be with you all today. So your book, which came out um, in September, is about communication. It's about how we can speak to each other to bring about the change necessary to overcome long-standing bias and discrimination. Let me start by asking you, how have we got to the point where some of us are too scared to express an opinion, whilst others just do not care who they offend? And where do we go from here? Yeah, I think it's an interesting place that we've gotten to because I think some of it is also down to personality types. There are some people who just naturally are more able to lean into conflict. They are more confident in their views. They are more confident speaking what's on their mind. I'm someone who's very confident saying what's on my mind. But I like to think I most of the time care about what other people think about that. But we're all on varying degrees of that scale. And there are some people who really do shy away from conflict in any form. And so for some Someone like that saying the wrong thing, upsetting people, if you're a people pleaser, offending people is like one of the worst things you can do. So doing that on an issue that's actually contentious is like ramped up by a thousand percent. And I did a video on Instagram where I talked about the different kinds of personalities and the way that they work in social justice conversations. Because some people are antagonizers. They say what shouldn't be said and they're very bold with it. And they're great to start conversations. And then there are people who are more educators. So what happens is they will come in behind that antagonistic person and maybe say, well, there's this and there's this. And then there's a resolutionist, people who want to see it through to like a solution. So I think a lot of that also plays into introvert, extrovert. But I think social media has really amplified whether people are comfortable speaking or not comfortable speaking. And I think that's added a whole other dimension to the conversation. Okay, that's a great starting point. And I have 101 questions coming out of that. Um, If you are silent, does that equal complicity? You know, if we are not actively communicating for change, are we reinforcing the the status quo? Um, you know, should we be proactively having these uncomfortable conversations despite the fear of offending or despite the fact that we feel deeply uncomfortable because we are people pleasers, as you mentioned? I think it's really interesting when people talk about silence and complicity. And I think it's 
about looking a bit deeper about where are we talking about that happening? Because for some people, if they don't see a brand or a, or a school or, or an organization speaking out on social media, they're saying, well, they're being silent and therefore complicit. Speaking up on social media is not always adding anything of value to a conversation. In fact, sometimes things like posting black squares, which to me, I did not post one. And I didn't post one because I just felt like, what is the point of this? Because for some people, posting a black square is doing the work. It's not doing the work. It's posting a black square. And so it, on some level, it's it's showing a, a level of solidarity, which is great. But if that's as far as it goes, then it's meaningless. So I think when we talk about silence and complicity, we need to think about where are people being silent and where are they being complicit? Do we sometimes need to give people the chance to work things through internally before speaking about something? Are they having those conversations behind the scenes with people of power where they can actually influence change? So only a person truly knows whether they're being silent and complicit. But I don't think we can only ever look at external, visible, front-facing markers as to whether someone is or is not silent. To uh, carry on talking about somebody who is absolutely not silent and to go back to what you said about antagonizers being great, someone like Katie Hopkins, where do you stand on that? I mean, is it uh, the old Voltaire quote, um, you know, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Is that still relevant today or actually is it safer to stop certain people with certain views from speaking out? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because what you can't stop is the view. Yes. I never forget one of the things from my RE class that I remember was the conversation on ethics, rights and responsibilities. For me, I'm a firm advocate of free speech, but that's because of the way I am. And I don't take a lot of things personally. Someone like Kate Hopkins, I do not take what she says personally, although she might be speaking about a group I belong to. I think some of what she says, most of what she says is ridiculous. But should she have the right to say it? Yes. If she is not inciting violence, breaking the law, or doing something else. And so when she moves into inciting violence, when she moves into inciting something that is actually against the law, then at that point, well, then no, clearly she should not be doing that. And broadcasters need to think about what is their responsibility in allowing her to break the law on their platforms. So I think that's where we get into issues where someone is doing something that will cause someone else harm. But I think we also have to realise that we are living in a time where Everyone said or thought or a lot of people thought Brexit won't happen because no one thinks that way. And then it did happen. And it happened because actually a lot of those views were not the quote unquote correct views. And so people didn't say them. But then when they got their chance, people voted and then we saw what happened. So the views are there, but just driven underground. So we have to take in the balance of by not allowing people to voice opinions, are we actually driving things down the way that where people actually gather in an unhelpful way. And I'm not necessarily talking about Brexit here, but I'm thinking about things like incels and, and different things. They gather together because actually they are speaking, but in a way that actually can't be countered. So what's not in the light, we can't counter. So you, you're, you are, your stance is very firmly anti-cancel culture then, isn't it, um, in that regard? You've got some very interesting views in your book about cancel culture. You say that it equates to rejection culture. Which is what people don't want. No one wants to be rejected. When anyone shares a view, they share it because they think they're right. And they share it because they believe in it. So cancel culture, what that is, is like a mass rejection of your view and of you. Mm. But cancel culture for me is also about call-out culture. 
because some things do need to be called out because some things that are said are offensive and they are hateful and they do, you know, make things move in a direction of discourse where we really don't want things to go that is not respectful, that is not civil, that does not respect someone else's view. The interesting thing to me about a lot of people who sorry, just kind of going back to free speech, is they want to be free to say whatever they want to say, but they don't want you to be free to say what you say. So they don't mind saying it, but they don't want anyone to rebut it. And that's when you have to think, okay, well, actually, maybe my view on free speech is not one of free speech, it's one of my speech. Mm. And I think cancel culture, you're kind of dealing in that same space, which is you might say something that is a problem and that is problematic. And then people call you out on that. You feel cancelled because you feel rejected are you cancelled? That's a question that I think is up for debate, but the world mm. feels cancelled. But I think the other thing that we need to do in some of these conversations is take away feelings from facts. People feel cancelled. People feel rejected. Actually, maybe people are just rejecting your point of view and anyone is allowed to do that. Mm. But that often doesn't happen in a way that is respectful or that feels quote unquote safe. Yes. So in your in your book, you say progress is achieved when we stop the infighting, which is only ever a distraction and choose to focus on all the things about which we do agree. So what do you mean by that? Is it about seeing that deep down we all want the same things? We want security. We want respect. We want to be heard. I think if you asked 10 people, do you think this world is fair and just? And do you think it could be better? Could it be fairer? Could it be more just? Most people would say yes. I would think, I do think the world can be more fair and more just. The issue is we all have very different views about what more fair and more just looks like. So rather than saying, I do want justice, but actually the way that I see justice being outworked is not the same way as you clearly. Okay. Well, we're never going to agree, but where can we find understanding in terms of moving forward? But actually what happens is most people want other people to see it their way. They want them to understand justice as they understand justice, which is why all that ends up happening is we get into this big argument about what's happening, what has happened, how we feel about it, what the problem the other person is, what a problem their view is. And what doesn't actually happen is we don't move into the conversation about, okay, so with this disagreement, let's come to an understanding, how do we move forward? And I think in the chapters where I write about making unedifying choices, I talk a lot about, well, I talk about how people say, you know, well, this concentration on young black boys means young working class white boys are being left behind. The reality is that we have two groups of boys who are being left behind. Why do we have to have the argument about who's more deserving of the help or who needs the help more? Why don't we have a conversation about very specific groups with specific needs that need to be met in a specific way? Because that's what doesn't happen. So we end up in this argument, which happens every year or so around exam time, you know, about white working class boys and young black boys and one group being left behind at the kind of uh, disadvantage of the other. And I actually think that's not okay. As a taxpayer, I would like all children to be educated and I would like that where it's specific to be met. Mm. So how can we know our own blind spots? And, and biases. I mean, aren't these the kind of the unknown unknowns? I think we can know some of our biases and I think we can begin to spot where they come up. We all know what good treatment is. 
because we all know and we've gone above and beyond for someone that we think deserves good treatment from us, whether that be because you want something from them or they seem important to you. So we know when we've listened, we know when we've given the benefit of the doubt, we know when we've allowed all this space for them to make a mistake, um, we've allowed them to take up all the space, do all the talking, and we've been very good at being deferential and saying, yes, yes. So you do know when that happens, which means you know when you're not doing it, which means that you can spot in yourself the kinds of people or the people who you don't give the benefit of the doubt to. Mm -hmm. So this is why I think unconscious bias has become a bit of a hiding shield for people. Well, it's just my biases and they're just all there under the surface somewhere. Oh, they're leaky. (laughs) And I think the thing is we have to say, well, if we are now at the stage where we're talking a lot about unconscious bias, that means we are now therefore conscious of it. So what we need to start talking about is our conscious biases that we have not yet addressed or been willing to. And I think the way that we can begin to have better relationships and spot our blind spots is, you know, I talk about in the book, you use people like mirrors. Who are you friends with? Who do you take advice from? Who do you listen to? Do you see that group you're aligning yourself with, as you say, do you see them as a project to be helped or do you see them as people who are equal to you? Because that makes a massive difference. Because if you don't know any people of color, if you don't know any black people, any brown people, you know, any, any Asian people, well, then what does that look like? How would you know that they are a complex group of people because you don't know any? So I think it's about understanding that through relationship, we can get better at seeing our blind spots and also better at understanding more about people that we don't know much about. So that's a really pertinent point, given how much of our lives are lived online, I think. How do you deal with online trolls or how do you have a meaningful discussion online? Is it even possible, do you think? I think it is possible. You know, there's a big conversation about should accounts be anonymous? And there are absolute reasons. And as a former journalist where whistleblowers need to stay anonymous. So I don't know if I don't think there should ever be no anonymous accounts because there are cases where it is vital and needed. But what I will say is, if you are having like a really strong view about something that's very personal and you won't put your face or name on, I'm not going to be engaging with that. I do sometimes engage with people, but I engage them on a case by case basis. I don't say I have a blanket rule. It depends on how they're engaging back with whatever I've said. I try not to get into arguments. As I write in the book, no one ever wins an argument. So I try not to get into arguments. But where someone just has a different point of view, I will try to have a conversation with them. And that's specifically tried to follow people who don't just have the same views as me. So I do follow some people who have some fairly right-wing views, um, who I call quite hardline conservatives. But I do that because I also want to interrogate my own thinking all the time. I'm not right about everything. And so there's a chance that I might not be right about this thing I've just said. And I also want to be able to wind my neck in from things that I've said and be able to say, well, maybe I've got that a bit wrong. Maybe I don't know enough about that. I think because a lot of times people feel embarrassed about the things that we don't know, we come out like wrong and strong or very strong. And even if we're wrong, we stay strong on it because we feel too embarrassed to say, okay, I didn't know that because we feel like we should know. But I think ego is the thing that gets away in the way of a lot of us having productive conversations because we don't want to seem small, insignificant, or like we're ill-informed. Of course. I, I mean, what you're saying here, essentially, I think, I think is the dangers of being in an echo chamber, that you need to be challenged. You need to be aware of what other people think, even if you disagree with it. So we all at some point have to work side by side with people whose opinions we don't share. 
is that okay? Is it ever okay to refuse to collaborate with someone who has a polarizing view, do you think? Or are we back into the realms of hate speech again? I think it is okay sometimes to say, actually, I'm not going to work with someone who has a completely or not collaborate on this thing, because we have to recognize that conversation can't solve everything. And sometimes there is no way forward. And I think it's important to say in our humanity that we will never reach that perfection of being, I think, so big in character that we'll just be able to take everything and anything. And sometimes actually we shouldn't. Some people are disrespectful. Some people are really rude. Some people are racist and sexist. And actually, even with new information, they are unwilling to move away from that. And if you, with information and with someone trying to help you along that journey, you're still unwilling to move from that. Well, no, actually, I don't think that's something that we have to collaborate on. But I think where we still feel that there is respect and where there is still a mutual vision for the end goal, I think we should try and work with people. As a journalist, you know, you work with a lot of people that you don't get on with because journalists and newsrooms are full of like massive egos. And so, you know, very often there are a lot of people who don't get on. But when you've got that 6 p.m. deadline for a package, you'll work with anyone to get it done because it's about getting it over the line. And I think what we are in danger of sometimes is Mm -hmm. making our disagreement bigger than the end goal. What is it that we're trying to achieve here? And how can we make that bigger than a personal disagreement on opinion? As I said, when it comes to big things, it's not about personal thing. That's very much about a values thing. But actually, on some things, it's just that we just don't agree. That should not be bigger than the end goal of, say, justice, in my opinion. I mean, you you talk about having to engage with people where they are rather than where we would like them to be, right? Yes. Yeah. So your background is in journalism and in the newsroom, as you've mentioned. Um, And you, you speak in a very interesting way about how we consume our news and how whichever um, news outlet we're looking at or newspaper we're reading, there is a bias there whether or not we believe it. News is not neutral and news has never been neutral. And I think there was a a long period of time where because it was all anyone had, it seemed like the truth because most of us are looking for an objective thing that we can pin here. This is why conversations on justice are hard because they're nuanced, complex and messy. And actually, most of us, we stereotype, we box because we want to be able to stick a pin in it and say, I know what this is. So with news, we've had to stick a pin in it to say, Here is the way that we find out what's gone on down my street, down the road, in this country, in another country, around the world. This is how I am informed. So we we need to stick a pin. So we need to believe that this thing is the truth. And the fact is, people make news. Behind every decision is a person. There's not an algorithm. And some will tell you, even algorithms are algorithms with inputted with data by people and people have biases. So wherever there's a person, there's going to be a view. And that's not saying that necessarily their their biases are all negative and all awful, but it's just saying there is a bias. I have a preference for certain kind of news. I don't really care for celebrity gossip. So the journalist, it was something that just didn't really interest me. So if I was approaching a story about that, it's going to be very like cut and dry. But if it's something that I did care about, of course, I'm going to bring my view in some way, shape or form in the clips that I choose, the people I choose to be in the news report, the way I choose to cut that, the script that I use around it is going to portray something of what I think. And all news is that because all news is human. And so I think it's worth when we come across people that we don't know much about and our main interaction with them has been through the media. And we have a view of that group of people that we need to interrogate where that's coming from because it's not coming out of a vacuum of neutral news. 
It's coming out of someone's bias, someone's worldview. I'm not anti-news. I'm pro-news. I'm pro-being informed. But I think it's about interrogating the bias of that news and where it's coming from and how that's affecting your own thinking. Mm -hmm. Let's think about some practicalities then, because many of our listeners will be thinking, you know, where do I start with this? How do I communicate for change? So what would you say to people who avoid tricky conversations or choose not to have a particular view because they're scared of offending? I think the first thing is to one, recognize where your biases are in that space why you feel the way you do? Is it because you don't feel informed? Is it because you think you have a quote unquote wrong view? That's not the correct view that everyone else has. You know, I think it's about interrogating why is it that you are not wanting to engage because there could be various reasons. I think the other thing is to inform yourself by trying to get to know people who are in the space where you feel that nervousness. You know, you hear often a lot about people touching black women's hair, especially. So that's something that's, you know, very typical. Now, if a stranger comes up to me and tries to touch my hair, what are you doing? I do not know you. Um, if a work colleague even comes and tries to touch my hair, like, okay, I don't really think that I know you like that. If I have a friend who is like, do you know what? I am just really curious about what your hair feels like. I am more likely to say, oh, yeah, like, here it is. And I think it's about recognizing that relationship is such an important part in all of these things. Where there's no relationship with people, these conversations are very scary and possibly sometimes not the right space to have it. But where you have relationship with people, those spaces are the spaces where you can have these tricky conversations as a starting point for more understanding. So it comes back to who are you friends with? Who are in your friendship circles? Who do you speak to? Who do you take advice from? And I think that's a really practical way, not in a voyeuristic way, like, hey, I'd love to know more about like black women and like your hair care products. No, <laughs> it's just more of a, it's more of a relationship of, of being friends. And through that relationship of discovery, you then get to understand more about how complex any group of people are and their thinking. And I think that's a great way to think about entering the conversation. Also recognize that the way you see the world is not the way the world is. Mm. It's just the way you see it. Mm. And so that other people's views are very valid because they're seeing the world through a whole different lens and way. And that's where they're coming at it from. So trying to take the human being in front of you into account rather than the box of who you think they are. Mm. It's interesting you you're talking about the don't touch my hair issue. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of the Halo Code who exist to bring about greater acceptance of the diversity of different hairstyles that you know black students can have within a school setting. Uh, and one of our GDST schools, Sutton High School, uh, was one of the first to sign up to it earlier um, in the year. And that felt like a big step forward to acknowledge, well, difference, but acceptance and, and to, to, to start a very, very uncomfortable conversation for some people. So leading on to my next question, how do you, how do you extricate yourself from a difficult conversation? I think when you're having difficult conversations, I think there's a few things that you can say which could be all true or some of them could be true. One of them is, do you know what? I don't know enough about this. Like, And that is a, a humbling truth. I don't, I don't actually know enough about this. And I've started this conversation and I now realize that I don't know as much as I thought I did. Another you know, kind of way of having a conversation is, okay, when I talk about white privilege. This is what I mean. What do you mean? When I talk about this, this is what I'm speaking about because we enter into these conversations with a big misunderstanding from the off. And so actually you, you never really get anywhere because everyone burrows further and further down into their rightness. So I think those are two really practical ways. And I think the third way is to say to someone, you know, I quite like you, 
but I think your views are not my views. And I think we need to find a way to have this conversation differently. And so I think maybe we both need to walk away now and come back together when we both cool down. Like I say in the book, we all think other people are traffic. We think everyone else is holding us up. We don't think that we are traffic. We don't think about all the people behind us that we're holding up. We're just thinking about all the cars in front who are ruining our day. And I think in these conversations, it's important to remember that we all have problematic views that would offend someone. And so sometimes without knowing, you could be offending someone as much as someone is offending you. And so I think taking the ego out of it and saying, I could be as wrong as I could be right is another way to extract or in conversation to save yourself (laughs) from um, digging further holes. In each episode of Raise Her Up, we hear from a member of our GDSD family to gain their perspective on the matter at hand. This is Fanula Kennedy, head of Wimbledon High School. Here at Wimbledon High, we are asking ourselves the question, can we reawaken an age of debate? And we're answering that question by introducing our new civil discourse programme for our students to be truly flexible, robust, and for the world to reawaken itself to the notion of real debate and discussion based on authentic encounters between inquiring hearts and minds. Many critically important issues have arisen in the last 18 months, and many injustices are rightly being uncovered. Larger numbers of people than ever are seeking for a fairer, more equitable world for all, and it feels timely and positive that this is the case, not least because the unfolding events in Afghanistan this summer have served as a shameful and terrifying reminder of how fortunate we are to have access to an education system which is free and encourages debate and diversity of thought. Yet at just the moment when the world should be pulling together in our battle against a global pandemic, it seems we are more polarised than ever. And so at Wimbledon High, we want to ask some big questions and explore their potential answers together. And crucially, these discussions are happening in an intergenerational forum. We cannot submit to the lazy and divisive notion that our age and level of experience renders us either too woke or too outmoded to understand and learn from those of a different generation. As the head of a leading school filled with amazing young women, it is not only my privilege, but also my duty to listen to all of the voices around me and take on board a diversity of viewpoints. Those of the students, of course, but also of the parents, the alumni and the staff. And so we will be threading civil discourse through the curriculum, through the academic, pastoral and co-curricular life of the school, learning, as Janelle Aldridge suggests, to communicate authentically for real and lasting change. So moving on, we have a lot of parents that are listening to this podcast and obviously being a good listener is pretty key in parenting. How can we become better listeners when it comes to communicating for change? I think we can become better listeners by really trying to understand where the conversation is coming from and think about why someone is saying what they're saying. So I know or I hear, you know, lots of parents, lots of children saying to their parents, well, you're just racist and, you know, you just don't understand and you're just full of the patriarchy and, and that's just misogynistic. And you've got to understand that young people, they are fertile minds and they're learning and the words are not coming from maybe the place that you think they're coming from. And sometimes it is about saying, okay, so what is it about what I just said that is racist? And sometimes you just have to really burrow down to help someone to help themselves as well in explaining 
why they feel the way they do. Because I think when you're young and you just sense this injustice, sometimes you don't even really know why you feel this way, but everyone's saying it. And so therefore must be true. And obviously young people know everything. And I knew everything when I was 18. So yeah, me too. <laughs> sometimes it's about interrogating in a thoughtful way. So what is it about what I just said? You know, why do you think this way? Because as much as we as adults are receiving all of these messages that are not neutral, so are young people. So these messages are coming from somewhere. So I think one thing about mm. listening, and for me, you know, I talk about in the book, a lot of people talk about radical listening, where you just listen and don't say anything. I actually think there's anything radical about that. I actually think that actually you listen to then do something. And so actually for me, thoughtful and active listening is about saying, who is us and who is them? Okay, what would happen if that then changed? Okay, what if I didn't say that and said this? What would you think then? And I think it is about really engaging people on a journey of active and thoughtful listening that leads to thoughtfulness because it's thoughtfulness that's missing from a lot of these conversations because people are just speaking without thinking. My dad was a big anti-group thinker. So my dad was always like, never leave your brain at the door. Always bring your brain with you. Always bring your own thoughts with you. So I became an interrogator of things, which is useful and sometimes not useful. But I think it is not about just passively listening things about listening and encouraging yourself and the person you're listening to to be thoughtful so yes despite the fact that obviously our our children know everything and they don't need to learn anything from us um you know parents are obviously the biggest influence in the early lives of their children what do you think that we as parents or as as influential adults can be doing to adapt our behavior and our language at home to help our children get past the same unconscious biases that that we might have transferred to them i think one of the first things is noticing the things that you say and it sounds really basic but we could watch telly and i remember a friend saying this to me about her child so i can i noticed that when i was watching certain programs on saturday night i was like giving this commentary like oh she's rubbish oh, she's not a very good thing. Oh, why does she wear that? You know, or oh, that doesn't suit her. And actually, she just began to notice. And I think for most people, when we're being conscious, it's fine. Mm. It's the unconscious moments and the unconscious commentary that just comes out of our mouths for most of us, you know, in just kind of like a verbal stream of consciousness. Um, so when you see something on the news about a group of people, oh, they're so unreasonable. That's putting something in someone's mind that might not have been there. It's like telling a child, oh, you're so messy. Okay, well, then they will take that on and then they will become like, well, it's just because I'm messy. I can't help it because I'm a messy person. Mm-hmm. It's the messages that we're always dropping in that we're not thinking about. So I think the first thing is to notice the conversations that we're having, both the throwaway comments, the conversations amongst adults when children are present, and where our own biases are often creeping into those conversations and how then we are letting our children know how the world works, what's okay, what's not okay, that that type of body shape is not good, that type of skin colour carries a certain kind of characteristic. These group of people are always like this, always doing that. And I think that is one way that we can begin to not pass on our biases by noticing when they're creeping into just life and seeping in in general because it's osmosis isn't it janelle i could talk to you all day so much food for thought here and so many practical implementable tips so thank you so much for joining us today thank you for having me thank you for listening to this episode of raise her up from the gdst 
To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Cathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST, when I'll be with Kathleen Hamilton from youth non-profit organisation Force of Nature, talking about how to deal with eco-anxiety. For me, it's really important that everyone just feels that they are a community member, right? And that's actually a term I prefer even more is like a community organiser. Like that's my favourite term, because for me, if I get to get in with people who are in my community and set up projects and do things that are close to home, I think that actually it's what I do offline that counts. It's the actions that I take when no one's looking that really matter. I'll see you then.